Nephi reports his vision of the reaction his writings would get, not just in his day, but in our day. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Doctrine, a podcast that follows the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week's lesson is 2 Nephi chapters 26 through 30, a marvelous work and a wonder. And uh, before we begin, I've got a question. This question comes from Lindsay. She says, in an episode, I believe in November and one in January, there was discussion uh, of the condescension of God. And within those episodes, you said things in a way that implies that God is the one that came to earth. Now, I could have just misheard or I didn't understand what you were saying, but what we know from the restored gospel is that God and Jesus Christ are two separate beings, just one in purpose. Now, maybe because the topic is condescension, it changes things or something, but I'm just very confused about that specific area. Thank you for your question, Lindsay. I think there are probably many people who find this confusing. Um, And I I think at the beginning, I, I should say I didn't misspeak. Uh, I, I said exactly what I meant, which was that God came to earth. Now, uh, don't take my word for it. I'm going to read to you Mosiah chapter 15, verse 1. This is this is Abinadi testifying before the wicked priests of or the priests of the wicked king Noah. He said, Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God Himself shall come down among the children of men, and shall redeem His people. So one thing you have to understand about Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. Uh, he, is, he is the one referred to as God throughout the Bible. So anytime that the children of Israel have dealings with God, it's Jesus Christ in his premortal uh, identity as Jehovah that they're dealing with. And before he had a body, before he came to earth, Jesus Christ, under the direction of the Father, but through his own power, created the earth. And so Jesus Christ is rightfully called the Creator, as well as all of his other names. He's known as our Creator and our God. So uh, he is, in fact, the. you can read further in that chapter in the Book of Mormon to, to learn that uh, we can rightfully call him our Father as well. So it gets a little confusing when you realize that God the Father and Jesus Christ can both be uh, rightfully referred to as God. And I think the, the important thing is to know that Jesus himself, he instructed us to pray to God in his name. And that is the dealing that we have with God the Father, is that he's the one we pray to. And other than that, Jesus Christ is generally the person who uh, the prophets are speaking of when they say, I saw God on his throne. I I know that sounds probably not like what you expected, but that is the case. When when, uh, Isaiah, for example, sees the vision of God on his throne, the, the God that he saw was Jehovah in the temple. In fact, there are only a couple of instances in the scriptures of God the Father appearing. One is at the baptism of Jesus, when God the Father says, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The other is in the vision, the first uh, Joseph Smith's account of the first vision, when he says that he saw God the Father and the Son, and, and God the Father said about Jesus Christ, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And so that's why, that's one of the reasons 
incidentally why the first vision is so exceptional is because not only did Joseph Smith see God the way many prophets have, but he saw God the Father testifying of Jehovah, the God of this world. And uh, so I'm, I can understand, Lindsay, it's totally natural why you'd be confused about that, but that is the doctrine of the church, and uh, it's it's a wonderful doctrine. It's an amazing doctrine, so I appreciate your question. Should you have a question, please send me email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. This week I've got a, a shout-out. This one goes out to Ollie, and uh, he may possibly be my youngest listener. Ollie gets baptized this month, and so um, I'm very excited for him. And he, in fact, he invited me. I don't know him personally, but he invited me to his baptism because he listens to the pop- podcast. And uh, so if, I, uh, if I'm if i not sure I'm going to be in town, but if I were in town, I would love to go. Ollie, thank you so much for listening. And uh, incidentally, Ollie's mother, a shout out goes out to her as well. Her name's Kim. We'll just call her Rockstar Kim because uh, she's pretty much a rock star. But uh, she discovered recently in a trip to the temple with her sister that they are both listeners of the podcast. So that just so happened they were having a gospel discussion within the temple. And uh, Kim asked her sister Stacy uh, that why why she thought the way she thought. And she said, well, I've been listening to this podcast, Gospel Doctrine. And so there you go. Um what can I say? When I hear a story like that, it just makes me smile from ear to ear because uh, there's nothing I like more than to hear about somebody who heard about the podcast from somebody other than me. And so that makes my day. Thank you so much for listening. And Oliver, congratulations on your baptism. Well, we have five amazing chapters to study today. And uh, so the the thing I like about them is they're clear, they're short, or relatively short, I should say. And so uh, if you were trying to get your reading in this week, you would have had no problem reading it multiple times and also understanding what, is, what uh, Nephi is saying. Notwithstanding the fact that he quotes, he has extensive quotes in this week's lesson of the prophet Isaiah, as, as he did, not as, not as extensive as the quotes from last week, but uh, there's a lot of Isaiah in this week's reading, and nevertheless, uh, it's so clear. So chapter 26 is Nephi's prophecy of the days of Christ's life and ministry and how it will be experienced among the Nephites. If you remember, in 3 Nephi, the Nephites experienced great destruction at the time of Christ's death. And at the time of his birth, they experienced a sign in the heavens. They experienced a day and a night and a day as if it were a single day. So those are some of the signs that attended the birth and death of Jesus Christ. And then, obviously, uh, the culmination of the Book of Mormon is that Christ visited the Nephites. So Nephi saw these things in vision, and chapter 26 is where he talks about how it will be for those of his posterity who experience the ministry of Christ who are on the earth at that time. And I just want to point out something. So there's a, there's a particular phrase that is used a lot in the church, and the, the phrase is, a marvelous work and a wonder. So last week, actually, it's in uh, 2 Nephi 25, we learned... Nephi taught us what this phrase means, so we we uh, we use it a lot, and it can mean anything from the coming forth of the Book of Mormon to the Restoration itself, but uh, Nephi uses it in a specific context. To me, what Nephi was saying is the marvelous work in a wonder is actually that God will prepare everyone to be judged, and what that means to be prepared for your judgment is that you get an opportunity to make choices. So the marvelous work in a wonder is the, the plan of salvation. God brings about our test, and then he brings us to judgment to stand before him and to find out what the results are. 
And that is, that is truly an amazing work. If you think about all of the generations of people that have lived on the earth, that they would all go through the capability, the, the process of having their eternal choices given weight and value in front of their maker. What, a, what an amazing work, what a marvelous work and a wonder. So that's my reading of what marvelous work and wonder means. And here he's talking about it again. He's saying that uh, the, the point of these things coming forth is that the Jews and the Gentiles must be convinced of the calling uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, but not just the Messiah. But the, So they're convinced of his calling, but also of his divinity. So Jesus is both Messiah and God. And the Jews and the Gentiles have to learn that and accept that. That is, the, that is the process that history will take, according to Nephi. That's what he sees. And he sees the apostasy of the Lamanites, that all of his people become Lamanites. And uh, the, the posterity of his brethren and his own posterity, they intermix, and, and eventually everyone becomes Lamanites. And he sees this apostasy, and then he sees uh, the apostasy of the world in general. He sees the wickedness uh, and the secret combinations among among all the people of the earth. And as we'll get into in chapter 28, he also sees uh, the, the wickedness in religion. So as he's talking about the wickedness that will exist in the earth, then uh, he, he immediately shifts into a quotation of Isaiah chapter 29. So that's, the, that's kind of the end of chapter 26, and then he goes right into this quotation. Now, there's something very, very interesting. This is uh, probably one of the more interesting passages in the whole Book of Mormon. This chapter uh, 27 of 2 Nephi, verses 1 through 4. And here's the reason. Uh, these verses do exist in Isaiah, but they exist in a slightly changed form. And specifically, there's part added to the beginning. There's part in the Book of Mormon. Uh, there is a particular part of this passage that exists in the Book of Mormon that does not exist in the Bible. So if if you, let's say that you were a, uh, a naysayer, a, a, someone who believed that Joseph Smith made up the Book of Mormon, this would be a great way to put Joseph Smith to the test. Joseph Smith actually added content to the words of Isaiah. Did he get it right? That would be one of the questions you might ask. And the answer is that this is a fascinating passage. It is so informative because uh, this passage as it is in the Book of Mormon has a much more, it, it has a poetic structure that is much truer to an actual Hebrew form than the, the part that we have, the passage that we have that has come down to us in the book of Isaiah. Uh, mo most specifically, you can notice, if you read it in the Book of Mormon, you can notice in these, I won't go through and analyze it verse by verse, but you can notice there's a chiasmus that's very specific, and it doesn't exist in the Bible, not in the same way. Um, there are many people who, after studying the Book of Mormon, are, if not convinced, at least they, their mind is open because of these verses alone. If, if they're a scriptural scholar or a scriptorian in any sense, and they're studying the Bible, and then they see that Joseph Smith in the early 1800s somehow came up with this missing chiasmus in the book of Isaiah, uh, and chiasmus was a literary form that had not yet been discovered. Uh, incidentally, we'll be doing a special episode on chiasmus in just a few weeks. Uh, keep, keep, stay tuned for more information about that. But chiasmus was a literary form that had not been discovered. Joseph Smith uh, would have had to invent it, uh, perfect it, then create one, compose a chiasmus, and add it on to Isaiah, and then not say anything about it, not teach his people about it. So, uh, very, very fascinating 
quotation from Isaiah chapter 29 here. And the the idea is that the the people of earth will be drunk on their own sins and iniquities in the last days. And then after that, he continues quoting Isaiah 29, but there's a loose correlation. It's not verse for verse. Uh, and that this loose correlation proves a couple of things. It's very strong evidence that Nephi had a copy of Isaiah with, number one, with his chiasmus still in it, or he was comfortable enough with chiasmus to create his own, right? So it's powerful evidence. Somebody made up a chiasma. It was either Nephi or it was uh, Isaiah or it was Joseph Smith. You can't think anything else when you read this. And so either uh, Nephi got it from Isaiah or he made it up himself. And uh, myself personally, I cannot imagine that someone with Joseph Smith's um, circumstances, education, this is aside from any spiritual consideration at all, I can't imagine that he could come up with that. Uh, so I, I, I love this passage for that reason, because it's a powerful witness of the prophetic calling of Nephi and his, um, much like much like Mormon, he was a prophet historian. Nephi did the same thing Mormon did. He, he abridged the history of his people and wrote it down on plates. And uh, so this is Nephi at his best, and I just love this passage. Now it's proof of one other thing. Um, this loose correlation here, and that is that Nephi, as I mentioned as we studied the Isaiah chapters, Nephi may have been comfortable changing Isaiah's words to fit his topic. Now, um, I mentioned that it's a lot of work to copy over, to, to transcribe scriptures from one set of plates to another. Why would he do that? And part of the answer might have been, I speculated, that it might have been that Nephi wanted to liken the words to his people. Well, we can see him doing that um, in an extended way here in chapter 27. Nephi is changing Isaiah 29 around. Not the, He's not changing the meaning of it, but he is applying it to fit the situation of his people. And it's powerful. This chapter is powerful prophecies about the translation and publication of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and this, so this marvelous work and a wonder now, we, learn, we hear more about it. And we realize that the marvelous work and a wonder is everyone gets a chance to hear the truth about God. And then justice comes upon all, um, and as we learned in uh, chapter 25. So chapter 20, and, the, and these chapters just kind of continue on. Uh, they don't, there's not necessarily, much like in Isaiah when the chapter breaks were inserted after, we don't have an indication on some of these chapter breaks that Nephi thought of them as separate chapters that might have been part of the same set of writings or the same discourse. So chapter 28 just continues on, and he's now prophesying about the the same religious revival that we hear about when Joseph gives his descriptions of the first vision. Uh, he's talking about how many religions there will be, how they all try to use the same set of scriptures to interpret and, and interpret them in different ways. And then there, he points out some specific false doctrines. One of them is that miracles will have ceased. So Nephi looks into the future and he sees that in the day the Book of Mormon will come to light, the, the general belief will be that God no longer does miracles. So people have no problem. People who, who can accept that Joshua, for example, is battling the Canaanites and he calls on God and God helps the sun uh, causes the sun to stand still in the sky until 
the Israelites can be victorious in battle. They can believe that. They can believe that Moses stretched forth his rod and the waters of the Red Sea parted asunder and the Israelites walked through on dry ground and then they, the waters crashed back in on the, the Egyptians behind them. They can read that and think, okay, I believe that God can do that, but then also believe that he would not do it today. Not for me, not for us, not in my time. So to Nephi, now think about it, because Nephi was a witness of the miracles of God in many occasions. For him to imagine a time when people would think the miracles of God had ceased must have been very surprising. He must have thought it was just such a silly idea, in much the same way that many people today think it's a silly idea that miracles would not have ceased. To, uh, to many in our world today, that seems like... Um, a very silly idea that we that we're still living in the age of miracles that God can cause uh, miraculous events, healings, the gift of tongues, and, and other miracles. Uh, the that there could be a living prophet on the earth. Those things are done away with, and that is just the accepted wisdom. To Nephi, this was a very very strange idea, and so he talks about how uh, that this is an aspect of the pride of man. And if you think about it, that's true. Now it doesn't mean. And Nephi even points this out. It doesn't mean that each individual person who uh, believes that idea is prideful. He says there are some people who are uh, very righteous, and yet because of the deception of Satan, they have been led astray because there are so many different ideas floating around and because pride is basically rampant in the world of religion. This is the entire story of chapter 28 is how pride rules the practice of religion. He talks about three strategies that Satan uses. And it's, it's I think, very profitable for us to think upon these uh, from time to time. Number one, he stirs men up again to anger one against another uh, and against specifically that which is good. And you can see this, incidentally. You can you, All you have to do, and I'm not going to go into specifics because it would probably get political, but all you have to do is open a newspaper and you will see people being stirred up to anger against that which is good. Uh, it happens every day. It happens all over the world. It happens, uh, I know it happens in the United States a lot, but I also, I also read the world news and I see it happening everywhere. And you don't have to look far. You don't have to wait long. And you'll see it happening. Satan is stirring up the hearts of men and women to anger against that which is good. Secondly, Satan pacifies us, saying, All is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth, uh, and there's no need to worry. And then the, this is where that passage comes from. It's uh, so descriptive. And I think, in, I don't know if you're like me, then you get a mental picture where it says he leads them carefully down to hell meaning that he never wants them to get an indication that there's any coercion involved, and yet uh, he's leading them the whole time down to hell. So he's, he's flattering them and he's pacifying them. So that's his second strategy. The first is stirring men up to anger, then pacification, and the third one is to lie and say, there is no hell. I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he gets a hold of them with his flaxen cords until he can bind them in his awful chains. So Satan is, or I'm sorry, uh, Nephi is talking about the plan of Satan here, the cunning plan of the evil one. And um, incidentally, there are all different kinds. We haven't discussed much about the, the Latter-day belief in the devil, but there are, there are 
all kinds of beliefs about what the Bible means when it says the devil did this or Satan did that. As you may know, uh, in Hebrew, the word Satan means, and it's usually Hasatan, which means the prosecutor, the opponent, the adversary. We also call Satan the adversary, but uh, the the Jewish idea is best found in the book of Job when God and Satan are talking, and Satan is accusing Job. So Satan can be uh, the the Satan can be uh, translated as the accuser, and Satan is accusing Job of being um, a fair weather servant of God. He's saying, God, you know that Job is only following you because uh, he's he's been blessed, right? I mean, Job doesn't actually have any backbone to follow you. Um, incidentally, you shouldn't take this as a as a literal uh, report of an actual conversation that occurred between God and Satan. The book of Job is highly metaphorical. Uh, but so that's the that's the Hebrew idea is that God and Satan could get together and talk and they could compare notes on a person on earth and Satan would be the accuser. And that was the belief. And Joseph Smith clarified that when, number one, bef- long before he brought forth the Book of Mormon, when he had an experience directly with the with the resistance of Satan to the first vision. And then also with all of the resistance that occurred on on several occasions sometimes indirectly and sometimes even directly um, to the to resist the bringing forth the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the church. And so Nephi now is teaching this doctrine very clearly that Satan is not just uh, the, the accuser. He's not just a prosecutor in the courts of heaven, but Satan is an actual enemy who desires our misery. Um, and if you've been a member of the church for a long time or for all of your life, you may not realize that that doctrine is actually not universal. There are, there are plenty of Christians who, who see Satan the way we do in the church, and there are plenty of Christians who do not. Uh, they don't know what to make of a belief in an opponent to God. They don't know why uh, God would allow that sort of thing to happen. And so they put Satan in sort of a different category where he's seen as metaphorical. So they're all different kinds of beliefs about Satan, just as there are about God. So that's what Nephi is talking about. Um, you may read this and think, what did, what does he mean? You know, why would we think that Satan doesn't exist? But it's important to remember uh, that there is an enemy to your soul, someone who, who doesn't just uh, not care if you fail in your in your God-given assignment of, of making your way back to Heavenly Father, but is actively seeking your utter destruction. And there is no depth to which he will not drag you. There is no sin so horrible or so vile that he wouldn't rejoice that you committed it. Think about somebody who exists like that and uh, how much protection that you and I must be receiving every moment of every day to escape his power. And that is what God is doing, right? He's watching over us all the time so that Satan does not have the power to tempt us beyond what we're capable of resisting. So this is not only a vision of the, the religious people in the future, but of Satan himself and the influence that he will have. And we have to remember that pride rules the world in the vision of Nephi. And therefore, uh, if we want to spot these three strategies of Satan, these three methods that he uses to trip us up, then we have to be very vigilant. We have to watch for them. We have to watch for when we could be stirred up in anger against something that's good. We have to watch for when we could be pacified. And that's probably, um, those who are listening to this podcast, that's probably our biggest danger. And then 
we have to watch for when our beliefs are maybe lulled to sleep where we think, you know, is Satan really working that hard? Like, is all this stuff, how real is all this stuff anyway? Uh, that's the third one, right? When we are convinced that there is no hell or it's not things, the stakes are not that high. And uh, that's, that's Satan whispering that, you know, you don't need to worry about your internal soul so much. You don't really need to worry about your eternal progress because none of it really matters. So the, the message of Nephi is it's pride that causes people to reject on principle more of the word of God. So he's, he's describing people who are going to say, uh, look, I don't want to receive more of the word of God. I, we've already got all of the word of God. And um, this, to me, chapter 28 and 29, which continues, we're going to start talking about 29, but they're both the same. It's the same speech. It's the same lesson, which is that there will come a time when people are resisting receiving more of the word of God. And Nephi points out, and I think it's very, very logical. I mean, I guess I should put it another way. It's almost, the logic is almost inescapable that this is because of pride. If someone refuses to accept more, they love God, they claim to love God, they say they love God, they, they love to read his word, and yet they won't accept more of his word. Nephi says that pride is at the bottom of that. And uh, so think about that. I mean, that you may have a reaction to that. Um, and I, I, I welcome your, your comments on that. But I personally, as I was reading this uh, for, in preparation for this lesson, I thought, you know, that's really right. That, that is the reason that somebody, at its foundation, that is the reason that someone would resist receiving more of the word of God rather than rejoicing. Now, obviously, you don't want to receive something as the word of God, which isn't. And that's a different issue, right? So the question isn't, um, okay, you have you claim to have a scripture, but I already know without reading it that you don't. That's one, that's one reaction. That's a very different reaction from you claim to have a book of scripture. I rejoice in the idea that God has more to say to me. I've read your book and I don't accept it. It doesn't seem to fit with what I believe about God. That's a totally different reaction, right? I've read plenty of books that fit that description that are not the Book of Mormon. There are plenty of people who claim to have scripture and I rejoice. I rejoice in the idea that God speaks to man um, and not every book that claims to be scripture can be, right? Obviously, Satan is going to have his counterfeits. And so if the attitude is no, you don't. Before I've looked at it, I already know you don't because God doesn't speak. Nephi's point is that's pride. That, that can come from nowhere else but pride. And uh, he takes it a little farther, further, and I, and I actually think that this is one of the best uh, passages. This is one of the most convincing passages uh, for Latter-day Saint theology in all of the Book of Mormon, and I'll tell you why. He says... I, God, so this is God speaking to, to Nephi, and Nephi says, I, God, talk to this, pe this group of people and this group of people. I esteem every nation as equal. Why wouldn't I? They're all my children, and I love them, and eventually I plan. I'm, I'm going to establish my word by sending it to these people and to them, and when they come back together, then my words will come together and support each other. And you read that, and you think, okay, the God I believe in, I, I may not be a Latter-day Saint, but I'm reading this chapter and 
I have to be thinking, the God I believe in does think that way. He has to work that way because he loves us and he wants us to succeed. He didn't set us up to fail. And so therefore, if he does have some people that are cut off, for example, the lost 10 tribes, we know they were carried away and we know they had prophets among them. So did those prophets, if those prophets were to write something, would those words not be considered scripture if they ever made their way back into general common knowledge? Uh, Of course they would. And so then what is the difference between that and the Book of Mormon? There really is no conceptual difference. The only difference is the way that the Book of Mormon came about. People can accept the idea that Joseph Smith was guided to do it, but they can accept that prophets were guided to such things in the past. And so this is a brilliant discourse by Nephi on the pride that will keep people from accepting the coming forth of more of the word of God. That's chapters 28 and 29. Incidentally, our proper attitude toward the Jews for bringing forth the Bible. This is where we get that famous verse, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, and there can be no more Bible. Our proper attitude toward the Jews for the coming forth of the Bible is gratitude. And uh, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to read also in chapter 29. So in, in uh, one of the things I love about using Gospel Library app is that you can create your own footnotes. And so you, you underline something and then you can, you can almost like writing in the margin, except you've got a ton of room. You've got as much room as you want. You can write a whole text there. And so I wanted to read the note that I have in my scriptures in first, I'm sorry, second Nephi chapter 29. This is attached to verses one and two. I don't know when I wrote this, um, but I'm going to read it to you. The Lord's reason. So this is, I'm sorry, I'm going to introduce it a little bit more. The beginning of chapter 29 and verse two, God says to Nephi, uh, well, I'll just read part of one and then two. I do, I'm going to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men, that I may remember my covenants which I have made unto the children of men, that I may set my hand again the second time to recover my people which are of the house of Israel, and also that I may remember the promises which I have made unto thee, Nephi, and also unto thy father, that I would remember your seed. So I, I was reading that and I was thinking, uh, that's right, when Enos kneels down to pray, uh, one of the reasons why his, when he, when he prays about the Lamanites, one of the reasons why he's given the answer that the Lamanites would be protected is that God promised to his fathers that he would. And I, and I remember thinking that was a, must have been a powerful prayer to get a promise from God that he will treat generations of people a certain way. So here's what I wrote. The Lord's reasons for doing his mighty Latter-day work are many, but not least among them is that he covenanted with Nephi and Lehi to remember their seed. The prayers of these two prophets affected millions of people. What will God do? What changes will he make to his plan because of my prayers? And I think that's a worthwhile question. And I don't mean that God... uh, When I say changes to his plan, I don't mean that God is going to actually change anything Uh, about his ideas. But if you believe that prayers actually bring blessings, and this is, now now stay with me here for just a minute. If you believe that prayers work, you pray for a blessing and it comes, then the corollary to that belief is if you don't pray, then there are some blessings that you just won't get. I know that seems hard to accept, 
But if you believe that prayer brings blessings, then you also believe that not praying means that there are some blessings that you otherwise would have received that you just don't get. So the answer is, how will what changes will God make? When I say what changes will God make to his plan, what I mean is, what blessings that I can only receive through prayer will I receive? Now, it may be that God would have treated uh, the seed of Nephi and Lehi similarly, and it may be that God actually changed some of his plans because of the faith and the prayers of Nephi and Lehi, and uh, not least among them, Enos, who prayed all day and all night because he, he loved the Lamanites. The thought that they would suffer hurt him so much. Um, and there are many, many prophets and missionaries in the Book of Mormon that felt the same way. They couldn't, in spite of the fact that they were enemies, they couldn't abide the idea that the Lamanites would suffer in wickedness. In fact, that's really the story of the Book, book of Mormon, is people who are motivated by love toward their enemies to such an extent that they would sacrifice their safety to bring them the truth. Now, I have a particular terminology for this idea. I call it an heirloom covenant. And uh, it basically means that we have, we have created, or I, I shouldn't say we, uh, Nephi and Lehi have created for their posterity a covenant that exists because they had so much faith. And I, I actually know people, and I, can, I, I know there are some people listening who have done this with their own families. They have created heirloom covenants. They have changed the lives, the trajectory of the lives of their children because of their faithfulness. And so in so doing, what they've done is they've set up a covenant with God that, God, I am, I am raising my children a certain way. I am worshiping a certain way. I'm, I'm allowing thee to change me in a certain way so that you will continue to bless my children when I'm gone and my grandchildren and so forth. And that is an heirloom covenant. Uh, that, that's my own terminology. I don't know that it exists in, in gospel doctrine, but I, I believe in it. Um, at the end of the chapter, I also wrote this. This is another note that I had in my, in my gospel library app. So the context of this is that uh, after, after Nephi has explained that all of the scriptures of all these different nations will come together and all of them, the, the act of them coming together is proof of the existence of God and of the mercy of God, his loving, his loving kindness. In fact, to me, any, any church that didn't have the doctrine where God loves everyone equally and could prove it by showing that God would send his word to one people and then another, and by showing that God is willing to redeem the dead. Uh, that's another wonderful aspect of the, the church, the restored church of Jesus Christ, is that it shows in so many different ways the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, the vicarious work for the dead. It shows that God loves all people equally, more than any other denomination of which I'm aware. It is such a powerful evidence of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. And uh, at the end of this chapter, then, after he's talking about all those things, uh, here's what I wrote. Um, this is attached to verses 13 and 14. God covenanted with Abraham, and to keep that covenant with a single person, the whole plan of salvation is changed. He covenanted with Enos and others to do a mighty work amongst their seed. What will he do because of my prayers? If I pray for him to bring forth more of his word, would it be a blessing or curse for him to answer me? 
Am I the kind of person who loves and obeys the light and truth I have already been given? So we each of us have an opportunity to create heirloom covenants of our own. We can, like Enos did, we can kneel down and pray and and ask God to bless our posterity forever. And God, once he covenants with us that he will do that because of our faithfulness, he will change the trajectory of hundreds of generations because we asked him to do it. That is God's desire, is to give us those kinds of blessings when we ask him. And this line of reasoning is continued in chapter 30. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, we learn that God's covenants are extended to those who are willing to keep them, not because of race or lineage. Uh, You remember the very memorable line from, uh, from the Bible when Jesus, the the scribes and Pharisees are surrounding him and saying, look, Abraham is our father. Uh, I don't know who your father is, but we have Abraham to our father. And Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, then you would do the works of Abraham. You're trying to kill me because I talk about God. I'm trying to reveal God to you. Abraham didn't do that. And so you have the devil for your father because the devil is the one who has inspired people throughout the ages to kill the prophets. And God, if you're, if what you're worried about is posterity from Abraham, God is capable of raising up seed to Abraham from these stones. And uh, I imagine him picking up a stone. I don't know whether he did. The point was, uh, God doesn't need us to be faithful in order to keep his promises to our ancestors. Uh, he's capable of figuring out a way. Our our ancestors covenant does not depend on us we have our agency god will not compel us in spite of a covenant he made to our ancestors i guess is a better way of saying that um incidentally um so jesus made the comparison with between stones and seed of abraham and the word for in hebrew the word for stone is eben and the word for son is ben so he was comparing the ben to the eben he did that again Uh, I believe it was in Matthew chapter 21 or 22 when he gives the uh, he he gives the parable of this the Lord of the vineyard and how he keeps sending his servants and these uh, these tenants that he has in his vineyard they keeps killing everyone finally sends his son and they kill him and so what is he asks the question what is what is what should the Lord of the vineyard do to these wicked husbandmen and um, and then he says the, the Son of God is the stone that the builder will reject, but it will become the head cornerstone. And so the, the, he is uh, playing on this idea of the ben and the eben, the, the stone and the sun. And so when I th- think about uh, the covenants uh, of God towards one prophet or one man, one person, that uh, wasn't just one man, incidentally, it was Abraham and Sarah that received the covenant of Abraham. Uh, when when we think about the covenants of God towards one family and the way that they affect posterity, and I always think of the stone versus the sun. God God doesn't need us to be righteous in order to keep that covenant. He can do it with anyone. So that's the stone versus the sun. That's a little digression, but that's the those are the spice of life. <laughs> okay, sorry for getting off topic. So. What of those who accept the Book of Mormon? So Nephi has been spending a lot of time talking about those who would reject it. And chapter 30 is where he talked about those who accept it. So 
uh, you might remember this language, this is biblical language, that God would come in verse 9, uh, Nephi describes God as smiting the earth with the rod of his mouth. Uh, with righteousness shall the Lord God judge the poor. So uh, all throughout chapter 30 of 2 Nephi, Nephi, this is really just an extended quote of Isaiah, first from chapter 11 and then from chapter 65. So chapter 11, you may remember, is where Isaiah says, uh, this is the famous branch prophecy. He's, it's very, very messianic. He's talking about this Davidic king who will arise. And this is where the Messiah gets the nickname, the branch. He's referred to by that name in Zechariah and other places. <clears throat> and some people believe that that, that name uh, and the, the town of Nazareth have a correlation. So um, that, that's the first chapter that Nephi is quoting is chapter 11, where he's speaking very much about the Messiah that every Jew and every Christian would believe in. And then he's also quoting from chapter 65. It's the second to last chapter in Isaiah, where Isaiah's attention is almost totally caught up in the, the new creation that will come about after the, all of the suffering that, that attends, that accompanies Jesus' second coming. So you'll notice that with Isaiah, events are not chronological. To a modern reader, it almost seems like Isaiah is easily distracted because he'll be talking about the need for righteousness and repentance, and then he'll uh, be immediately swayed into talking about this wonderful blessing that God will bring about, the, the changes that will come upon the earth when, when all things are created anew. But the truth is that's just a very Hebrew way of teaching, is that they didn't things did not have to be chronological for them. And so for us, it could be confusing. Why did he go from that? It seems like what he's saying is the new creation follows this other event directly. Uh, it wasn't Neph or I'm sorry, it wasn't Isaiah's intention to talk about a specific chronology of the latter days. And that's why we can get sort of distracted. We can, we can look beyond the mark if we try to construct an order of events for the second coming. Because um, ancient Hebrew prophets simply did not have that as the way that they taught, was to teach a chronological order of events. It wasn't their motive. It, it wasn't their goal. And in any case, uh, chapter 65 is one of those chapters where Isaiah is caught up into this vision and he's talking about how wonderful it will be. The entire nature of the, the animal kingdom uh, will change, the plant kingdom will change, man himself will change. This, this idea of beating swords into plowshares is heightened when a lamb lies down with a lion. So that's the kind of world we'll all live in. And Nephi sees all of this. He's freely adapting the words of Isaiah to fit the, the vision that he sees. And uh, one of his takeaways is in verse 17, Second uh, Nephi chapter 30, verse 17. There is nothing which is secret, save it shall be revealed. There is no work of darkness, save it shall be made manifest in the light. And there is nothing which is sealed upon the earth, save it shall be loosed. So if you think about, he, he goes on to talk about um, how everything that has ever been revealed to any prophet will be revealed to all. There will come a time when all of us get to, for example, see the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Uh, earlier in chapter 27, Nephi talks about the translation process of the Book of Mormon and how part of the book was sealed. And uh, you may remember this story. Incidentally, I wanted to recommend to you 
the the book that the church put out about the history of um, Joseph Smith, the early history of the church, the translation of the Book of Mormon, the plates, the first vision, etc., called Saints. And this is freely available in your Gospel Library app, as well as available uh, as a as a trade paperback. And it's a wonderful book. I mean, it uh, it it portrays Joseph Smith as a human. You can kind of see that his weaknesses and as a as a teenager um, being sort of impressionable other people pressuring him to follow their desires rather than his own and he had to learn the hard way one of the ways that he learned that was by giving in to pressure from Martin Harris to deliver the manuscript pages so Joseph Smith just wanted to be nice to people good to people and he wanted to make them happy in addition to wanting to follow the directions of God and he learned through hard experience this is why he was so unflinching in following the will of God is that he had to learn that through hard experience um, and so reading that book in conjunction with reading chapter 27 you'll see a lot of the parallels it's fascinating so I highly recommend that book and so my takeaway from this lesson is number one uh, we have such a powerful powerful testimony in the Book of Mormon, not only of uh, the Restoration. No, the, the most powerful testimony of the Book of Mormon is a testimony about God himself, about the nature of Jesus Christ and the nature of his salvation. And here in these chapters specifically, about the fact that God esteems all flesh as one. And so just because there was a chosen nation called Israel, it doesn't mean that they were better. In fact, Nephi said to his brothers, do you think that God would have uh, this was at the time they were building the ship. Do you think God would have prospered the Israelites if they, if the Canaanites had been righteous? No, God, God esteems all flesh alike. This is a, a message that if you can find it in the Bible, but you have to work a little bit harder to justify it because there are seeming contradictions to that doctrine in the Bible. And here in the Book of Mormon, it's so abundantly clear that God loves so everyone so much that he will never stop revealing his truth. He will never stop the day of miracles. He will never stop having a prophet on the earth. He will never stop allowing his words to flow together and support each other and bring us closer to him because he has to reach out to us. That's his job. That's his whole plan. That's his purpose. When God said in uh, the book of Moses, he said, It is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. It's not the kind of work for which God expects a paycheck, and God never sleeps. Uh, he doesn't punch in and punch out. He's always at it. It is his sole purpose is to bring us happiness and joy and the peace that comes from following him. That is the reason for the commandments. That is reason for the scriptures. That is reason for a living prophet is that God is trying to bring about our immortality and eternal life of man. That is his marvelous work and a wonder. We are his marvelous work and his wonder to give us the opportunity to accept the truth and then bring us before him so that we can receive our reward. So may we ignore those distractions which would keep us, those uh, being angered against all things that are good and being flattered or distracted away or being pacified to the point where we don't even believe that there's a God or Satan at all. May we resist all of those things and may we remember that God loves us and loves all people equally that God's truth is to be found in the earth today. What a comforting message that is. That is the message of the Book of Mormon. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.